Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Vance Powell. And if you're not familiar with him, Vance is a six-time Grammy-winning record producer, engineer, and mixer. He's worked with artists like Fish, Chris Stapleton, Jack White, Tyler Bryant and the Shakedown, The Rack on Tours, The Dead Weather, The White Stripes, Arctic Monkeys, Wolf Mother. He has worked on so many amazing, amazing sounding records. And in this interview today, we get into the topic of making records that have character. And when you listen to Vance's tracks, he has this really cool vibe to his songs. There's always cool ambience, there's some cool saturation, there's a lot of character to his tracks. And in this interview, we get into a lot of his process and what goes into making these records sound the way that they do. So I think you're going to find this interview very interesting. Vance goes into a lot of detail about the exact pieces of equipment that he likes to use and exactly how he dials in his settings. So I think you're going to find this very fascinating. So without further ado, let's just jump right into my interview with him. Vance Powell, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Awesome. For people who might not know about you, which I can't believe because you've worked on so many awesome records, but for people who might not know your story, how you got into music, how you got into production and engineering and all this fun stuff that you're working on these days, can you give us that background? I can give you a little of it. Um, uh, to be honest with you, I have gone over this so many times. There's tons of backstory for me on the internet. You know, um, I'm a kid from a small town in Missouri, Joplin, Missouri. I was a nerd. I went to electronic school in high school, then went to computer programming. Um, I had a cool stereo. A friend of mine was uh, a guitar player. He started playing in a band. I started going and hanging out with them. Live sound. And then and then basically from there, it's kind of off to the races. Uh, that would have been about 1980. Five, I guess, something along in there. I graduated in 83, so I, I graduated in 82. So, you know, for the first couple of years, we did a bunch of bands. I, I mixed local bands and had a PA and all that. And, and then I got my first studio gig in 86, early 86, I would say 86, 85, somewhere in there. Uh, Part-time little studio in my hometown. I did that for a while. There's a lot of story. I'm going to jump over because it's it's on the internet. You can find it. There's a tape op article a while back. It's super in depth. Um, I moved up to Springfield, Missouri, ostensibly uh, to get out of my hometown, which is cool. Um, you know, my hometown's forty thousand people. Springfield was like two hundred fifty with a college, much better music scene, and strangely, uh, it was a little bit of a music hub. Uh, because of a little bit of backstory, the Ozark Jamboree, or Ozark Jubilee, Jubilee uh, was a TV show that ran in the 50s and 60s. It was a huge country music show, actually bigger than the Grand Ole Opry, that was filmed in Springfield. So there was a lot of musicians and songwriters, uh, Pat, you know, uh, Brenda Lee and uh, a whole bunch of people, uh, Cy Simon, a bunch of like important music industry figures basically came out of Springfield, Missouri. The one that only one that matters to me is Lou Whitney. Lou Whitney was a, a bass player, studio owner in Springfield that I wanted to work for his studio. And so I moved to Springfield. I worked at a shitty club for a year and then uh, started working with Lou and touring with his band, the Skeletons. And we toured with Dave Alvin, did a bunch of stuff. And basically that 
cross paths with people who got me to Nashville in a roundabout way by getting a job working for Tammy Wynette as a monitor engineer initially, and then moving up to production manager in front of house about seven months later. And I uh, worked for her for uh, five years. I'd moved to town and moved to Nashville. And I wanted to get into the studio scene here, but it was pretty much impossible unless you started, you know, as an intern. And I'd already had like five years of like running a studio and making records. And and um, I was making pretty good money uh, from what I thought was pretty good money at the time uh, compared to nothing. You know, it's pretty good money. Uh and uh, so I didn't really pursue the studio thing until about 98, 97, 98. I went to work for a band here in Nashville, or 98, uh, called Jars of Clay. And in 98, 99, I was uh, doing a lot of recording with them on the road. Like we'd record rehearsals and they were working on new songs and just, you know, things. And then in 2001, um, they asked me to take a leave of absence. I was working for Claire Brothers, the big sound company there. Yeah. And uh, they take, asked me to take a leave of absence to make a Christmas record. I'm making air quotes now, Christmas record. <laughs> uh, we worked on exactly one Christmas song. Uh, but we ended up recording about 60 songs. And they decided that they just wanted to produce the record themselves through a bunch of other issues. And so we did. And we ended up working on that record for about 10 and a half months. The last day of recording of that record was September 10th of 2001. So we ended that night, went home and woke up to a new world. It's uh, crazy. We're supposed to go to the studio the next morning and get all the gear. And it was like, yeah, we're just going to stay home. Uh, but um, so I ended up, I uh, did this record. It was called The 11th Hour. It it ended up being my first Grammy winner. Uh, it was like a gold record, sold over 500,000 copies. Um, around that time, I was working on that record. Uh, I had taken a leave of absence from MD Systems, Claire Brothers in Nashville. That's where I'd been working as a live sound guy. and. Um, uh, John McBride was a good friend of mine and he wanted to build a studio. And first it was going to be, you know, on the, on the, over his tennis court, it's going to be a pool house air quotes again. <laughs> uh, but then he found this building and, um, in January of, uh, 2002 and basically bought it that day. And that became Blackbird. Um, not long after that, he asked me to go to work for him to help build the studio, um, I had just built a studio, the Jars of Clay. I'd been instrumental in helping that uh, sort of get moving. And so I went over there and it, it just snowballed into the behemoth that it is now. I was there for eight and a half years. Uh, in that period of time, uh, I did a Rack and Tours record that won a Best Engineered Album Grammy. Uh, I did a Buddy Guy record that was nominated. I did two Buddy Guys records. One of them was rec- one of them won, but I, I was. Uh, Oh, yeah, I guess I was still working there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I was a Blackbird until about 2010 when it just made much more sense for me to be at my studio, which I had moved into in 2006 uh, with Mitch Dane, my partner. And that was the uh, old Sputnik, which is down the street at uh, House of Blues or now called Universal. I think now it's actually back to East Iris, whatever. I don't know. Um, and that, uh, we moved here. We were, I was working out of there at 2010, um, and working at Jack for Jack White, doing tons of stuff with Jack. Uh, 
And I worked really heavy with Jack until about 2014. Um, uh, in 2014, I was working on a record. 2013, sorry, 13. I was working on a record with a band from Australia, and Jack came by. He wanted to finish Lazaretto, and I was like, I'd love to, but I'm booked all month. And he's like, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> so my assistant that had been working with him, I said, well, just Josh can me. Josh can work with you. I'll come and mix or I'll, whatever you need. He's like, yeah, great idea. So Josh Smith had been working with him. He sort of moved up and um, then had, had, had been working with Jack all this time until this, until just the very end of this last record. Um, so uh, that was cool. Um, I still did the last Dragon Tours record, although we mixed it here in my place. But um, 2014, they uh, Mitch, my partner, found this building, which is about. It's it's weird. It's only one. Uh, this is 408, and we used to be at 513, but it's actually about four three block walk down there, down and around a corner. Uh, it's straight across the street from Westlake Pro, the old one across Westlake Pro, and um, blah blah blah, you know. But um, so we moved down here, uh, built all this in 2014, and moved in in January 2015. Wow! And I've been here ever since. So um, you know, it's gone through changes. I've implemented Atmos in here. Uh, you know, done a lot of construction, done a lot of things. It was just a blank room when i got here it was just empty yeah and for people who can't see it now now it looks like a spaceship behind you You got all all sorts of gear around you <laughs> yeah this is the this is the wall here of stuff so you kind of got your start primarily in the live side of things yeah but i the thing was is that even while i was doing live sound i was still doing recording i had a four track recorder yeah uh, you know all that kind of stuff had an eight track recorder for a while a four track recorder for a while you know you know, all that. I, I always wanted to be making records, but, you know, live sound teaches you a lot of things, it teaches you how to get sounds quick, how to put a, put a mix, a mix together quickly. Uh, I think that's why I worked for Jack for eight years, because he doesn't have a lot of patience for he wants things done. He wants to get things done. He likes to work fast. Yeah. Well, I was curious about that. I was curious to know what you like. Did you find that there was a lot of crossover between the live sound side of things and, and the studio? And, and if so, what sort of elements of that did you feel like you really benefited from? Well, the probably the biggest thing is that one of the things that happens with live sound is that you're you're pushed into situations where you're on an unfamiliar desk, you're on a familiar PA, you're you know, you've got one song to put a mix together. I mean, I was out on the road when I was with Jars, and we had a 52 input from the depth from the stage, and we were playing in front of like you know 70,000 people, like big these big festivals. You know, I, I couldn't bring my console out through all the people, so you know, you just got to spin to win. And part of the thing that happens is that you you sort of figure out like what has to happen to make this mix come together fast. So um, I think a lot of times that. I've seen uh, younger people who obviously only have ever done Pro Tools. Of course, I came up recording on tape with a console. You know that whole world um, is uh, they get they get lazy in the way they're recording by you know well I can put six microphones on this one guitar amp so let's do it because I have six inputs you know. Well, that doesn't really do anything. I mean, that's it's great that you record that, but why not just put that on one track? If it sounds good, all of them added together, just put it on one track. 
you know, great. People don't make decisions. And I think that's kind of the, the, the problem, the, the thing that is happening now with a lot of like really bad mixing and recording is that we can do things. I mean, I've gone on, this is a tangent I, I go on all the time, but just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. And Pro Tools, any DAW-based recording, Logic, Nuendo, Q-based, you know, pick your poison, Reaper, whatever, allows you to do all kinds of things you probably don't need to be doing. I mean, it's sure. just, <laughs> you just don't need to be doing all that. Um, you know, editing tracks to the grid. Don't really need to do that unless it doesn't feel good. And if it doesn't feel good, you should just record it again. You know, re keep recording until it feels good. And then you don't have to do a lot of editing. Now, there are times when that doesn't happen. I just had one the other day. I, you know, the band had five hours between the time they could get to the studio and the time they had to leave to go to the bus. Five hours, cut one song. Okay, well, you'd think, oh, that's plenty of time. Well, you know, that's five hours to do the whole thing. You know, the Beatles did a whole record in one day, but they had been rehearsing for four years, you know, and they cut it to two track. <laughs> so, you know, this is this is a totally different deal. This is something we have to mix later. We have to do we have to do real vocals later on it. We have, you know, all those things. So um, and to be honest with you, the band had never really played it and they didn't play it very well, to be honest with you. So, you know. I have to. I passed it to Mike, my assistant, and was like, "Yeah, let's just let's just make this fit a little bit better." And he put it together, edited it a little bit, didn't do it on the grid, but edited it so it felt better. And you know, it wasn't really anything bad. It's just, you know, the drummer was trying to play something a little too complicated. You know, things that it was the touring band, so it wasn't the session guys. You know. And it's just one of those things. Sometimes you have to edit things. I'm not saying I don't do it. I'm just saying doing it for the sake of doing it is a bad idea. You know, okay, we're going to get a chorus. It's really great. Okay, now we're going to copy that into every chorus. All right, well, that's fucking boring as shit. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a level of preparation that goes along with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, the Beatles did it. Everybody did it. It's not, it's not that. It's just make sure it feels good first. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point and, and something that I don't feel like a lot of bands really focus on before they even get into the studio. It's like a lot of people haven't ever played to a click track, you know, and, and if you feed them a click track, the, the idea of that is like scary to some people because it kind of shows their level of musicianship to some degree, you know, but but it's something that like. I, I definitely feel like I'm assuming when you're talking about feel like you're still giving bands a click track, I'm assuming, right? When, when you're recording them sometimes, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, sometimes you have to, because the production requires that later, right? Sometimes you have to, because it's speeding up and slowing down inappropriately, right? Speeding up and slowing down is cool. I mean, if anything, man, you know, bands that push the chorus and pull back on the verse. And, I mean, yeah, that's that's rock and roll there. That's fine. Um, but, you know, sometimes you have to. Um, there are bands that I would never in a million years ever say need a click track. I've never ever in a million years thought that Chris Stapleton needs a click track or B know that he wants one. He doesn't. I can tell you right now, he does not. 
Um, that being said, uh, we did a track for somebody else with Chris's band. And we put it on a click. And the drummer, Joe, or Joe, not Joe, Derek Mixon. It's funny. I have a friend named Joe Nixon. And then I have Derek Mixon. So, <laughs> sorry. I got totally messed up. Derek Mixon, he played with dead on. I mean, it was perfect. But the funny thing is, is that when he plays with Chris, he kind of plays dead on perfect all the time anyway. He's just so good. But um, Chris was a little worried that they would want to do additional uh, production to it. Like, because again, it was something we were doing for somebody else. Right. And, uh, and then it ended up, the guy was like, no, we love it. It's great. So we didn't really need, ever need to do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I guess as long as at the, at the end of the day, when the band locks in, that's all that really matters. If people are sloppy, then yeah, you got to fix those things. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've done tons of records where it's like, okay, cool. We're going to, we're going to take and let's cut this track to the click because we're going to do some uh like you know drums and samples loops based production later if it you know in spots yeah that makes sense to do it that way instead of you know bu- 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 doing it with your fingers yeah yeah which is how prince did it by the way so yeah. there you go <laughs> so then in addition to how live sound has impacted your workflow and and just the way you like to work with bands do you feel like it's had an impact on kind of like the sonic character of your mixes at all of course well, see, I, I kind of feel like that um, I, I kind of feel like this. This is a dumb analogy, but I sort of feel like I'm the baker of a big sonic pie. And and what I want is, you know, right before it goes in the oven, I stick my thumb in the corner. You know what I mean? Right before it gets finished, I go boop, and here's my thumbprint in it yes it looks like a pie it tastes like a pie but there's a big my big thumbprint in it and i think the thing is i finally come across the path that i don't exactly hear things like everybody else does like in my head what what sounds kick ass to me is not what sounds kick ass to other people maybe or it just sounds different so therefore they like it um i personally and like a huge fan of like a lot of like George Massenberg's work, my friend Jakir King, I love his stuff. I can't do that. I just, I just don't, I just don't have any way of doing that thing that they do. Um, but you know, Jakir's always like, man, so how would, how'd you do this? Cause I don't quite understand what's going on here. And I'm like, ah, okay, cool. You know what I mean? So I think it works both ways, you know? Um, Chad Blake, amazing, you know, amazing work. I like the more lo-fi that he goes, the better I like it. You know, a Latin Playboys record. I mean, shit, man, that's fucking awesome. Um, but then like Peter Gabriel stuff, amazing also. So um he's uh he's really, really, really talented. You know, there's there's a lot of guys who are really, really great. I don't think anything I do either compares to it or is anywhere near it. And then they would probably, or maybe, maybe not, I don't know, say the same thing about anybody else. You know what I mean? That's the deal is we can't, I just don't, I just don't live in that world. I don't, I don't live in trying to beat other people or try to even be in the same category. You know, I have a really bizarre conversation with a very, 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 um, 
popular in some circles mix engineer where he was talking about him and I, you know, guys like us, we got to stay together. And I'm like, I am nothing like you. I'm not even in the same category as you, you know, uh, you're doing all these big, huge pop mixes and all these big things and all this and that. And I'm doing all the things that I do, but they're they're all outside of that. They're all on the fringes, you know, of what you're doing. But, you know, I think it just in his head, he was sort of thinking, you know what I mean? That, I don't know. I don't know exactly what he was thinking. Well, you're kind of like, you know, taking inspiration from other people, but then there's also that like imposter feeling, uh, you know, imposter syndrome feeling. Oh, well, imposter syndrome is uh, imposter syndrome is, you know, seriously a deal. Yeah, absolutely. But but I like your approach of like you realizing, OK, well, like, yeah, we're not competition to each other. You know, we're all just in here to kind of learn from each other. And yeah, music isn't a competition. Yeah. You know, uh, if if one of my friends gets a gig and I don't get it. Great. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I just I just am not mad about it. Um, you know, I'll I'll. I'll order some drinks on then the next time we go to a bar. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Drinks run you down. Yeah. <laughs> I love <You> that. <laughs> but by the same token, you know, I mean, uh, imposter syndrome and, and professional jealousy are the things that, you know, sort of keep us working sometimes. Do you know what I mean by that? The thing that, you know, we want, I want to win every gig. You know, first, a few things. First of all, I should tell you, A, I never, ever participate in any sort of mixed shootout, ever. I don't give a shit if it's the fucking Beatles. I'm not going to do it. Pardon my language. You know, maybe for the Beatles, but you, you, no, you know what I mean? I'm just <laughs> not going to do it, period. Um, I don't believe in mastering shootouts. I don't believe in any of that because basically what you're doing is you're saying, okay, I'm going to just spread this out and I'm going to see what blooms. And then I'm going to pick the one that blooms and kill all the others. And that's just, that's just fucking terrible. It's a terrible way to work. Um, I was, I was, I was, I wasn't mastering or, or producing a record. I was mixing record. And a friend of mine, who's a mastering engineer in LA um, called me and he had some questions about the about the mix. And I was like, first of all, why are you calling me about this mix? I'm mixing the record right now. Oh, well, they sent me the file that you gave them. I'm like, well, that's not the master, first of all. And secondly, what are they talking to you about? Oh, well, they're, they're doing a mix shootout, a mastering shootout. And I was like, so the next day I came in, I go, what the fuck are you guys doing? Wait, what? Why is this happening? Oh, well, we just thought we'd get ahead of the game. I'm like, first of all, don't ever do a, a mastering shootout or a mix shootout. You're asking people to work for free. You're asking people to try to beat other people, right? And so what's the end game? Is it the loudest file? Is it the, the, the most natural master? You know, if you didn't do any of that and you just sent it to somebody I suggest or somebody that you want to use and you got it back, you'd be like, wow, that's really great. You know, so giving an option, a selection of options suddenly starts putting things in the, oh, this is this is better than this. This is better than this. You know, better is the um, enemy of great, period. You know, I think it's supposed to be better is the enemy of good. But the reality is, is that better, air quotes, is the enemy of great. Because if you can't say, that's great, I stand behind that. 
then why are we even in, why are we professionals? Now I have had mastering come back to me that I didn't fucking understand. I just was like, okay, well, thanks. You know, but, um, you know, we're, we're not going to, this is not going to work. You know what I mean? And I, and I've had people say, okay, well, cool. And then, you know, we're, we're done. Our business is over. I pay them for their time and we, we go to somebody else. Um, I've also had people go, oh, well, I, you know, I thought you wanted so-and-so. I'm like, why did I tell you that? Well, I just, it's you. And I thought you wanted it, you know, cause no, no, huh? I don't, I don't like, especially loud loudness being loud. I don't give a shit. I don't care. I don't care. It's loud. It makes sense that if someone's hiring you, then, you know, you have this creative vision for where the song should go. And, and you also have lots of relationships with people that you trust and that you know how they can add to your, your or enhance your work. And so, you know, consulting with you about, you know, who's the go to person you would go to for this. And that, that that to me seems like it would make sense because then the whole vision gets carried all the way through rather than trying to, like you said, create this competition and, you know, shooting out all these people just to see, like, which one maybe sounds better. It's it's. It, it kind of just loses the alignment of why they maybe came to you in the first place. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I just, I produced a record last year that when it went to mastering, uh, when the engineer sent it back, I just was, I just was like, this sucks. It's fucking terrible. And, um, but the artist loved it. I just told him, I just like, well, look, here's the deal. Your name's in like big 24 font, you know, point font. <laughs> and mine's down here in the eight, six, tiny down here at the bottom. So that's what's more important. I don't, you know, if you love it, great. Not how I would have done it. But if you love it, great. It's got your name on it. You live with it. Yep, absolutely. Well, I guess, yeah, at the end of the day, like, these people, yeah, like you said, they're 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 the top of the food chain with this whole thing, and it's their vision, it's their project. So if that, if they're at the end of the day they're happy with it, then that's all that really matters, right? And they were the ones. I mean, they were the ones paying me to do it. So, you know, I I did my part. I put in my two cents everywhere, and and uh, you know everybody was cool with all of my two cents until it got to the end. And to be honest with you, I think that his choice who mastered it was more based on relationship than quality. Quality was about job four on that. Relationship was more important. So, okay. Well, I'd love to shift gears and talk a little bit about your productions and, and the way you mix, because I think you, you just have so many cool characteristics when it comes to your mixes and, and the sonic characters that I love. And one thing that stands out to me when I listen to a lot of your mixes is the way you use delay. And you have this really cool way of adding a lot of of using delay to add a lot of vibe and character to your songs. And I'm curious to know, like, how you go about deciding when to use delay, what types to use delay, like what settings to use, that kind of thing. Like, what's your thought process behind implementing that kind of stuff? Well, I'm not a reverb. I'm, I'm it's funny. I have more reverbs now than I've ever had, but um, I'm not really a lover of reverb. And part of. I think my mix aesthetic has been so formulated in mixing like rock bands on, on small PAs and trying to like get the maximum amount of SPL and punch out of a small PA as possible. And one of the things that you kind of learn is 
the more reverb you add to things, the more it ends up just sort of eating up bandwidth, right? Part of my thing is I'm always trying to get the most direct, closest sounds. Reverb often makes sounds move back in the in the world. So I don't use a ton of reverb in in things. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit of reverb on the drums, but I, I tend to kind of just a little bit on the kick, a little bit on the drums to just hit, see if my room, make my room a little bigger. Um, delays are what, and echoes are what I like. I love the sound. Again, let's go back to my life sound world. Uh, if you're in a really big arena, right, and there's 12,000 people there, and the drummer starts playing. If you're in front of house, you hear the back wall behind you. You hear that slap. That's part of the sound, you know, the poof, that big boom, you know, of the kick drum, boom, you know, uh, just part of the thing you hear. So I love that sort of sound in things. So I'm always sort of sliding some sort of delay, some sort of um, pre, like, like, pre-echo in the reverb or or some sort of time-based thing for the drums but trying to keep the initial drum hit clean you know what i'm saying so there's always something a little behind it because uh i will slide like a like let's say i pull a plate like a really short plate on the snare drum or something i'll slide it 30 or 40 milliseconds back i'll 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 fight it i'll slide it so it's you know that little flammy thing, the reverb actually is flaming a little bit. That creates some complications in the drums. Uh, I usually record uh, this, I got this little weird Ampex mic, and it, it, I put it right like between the drummer's, the, the snare drum and the kick drum, pointing his drummer's crotch or knee or something. I put it down in there, and uh, uh, I'll put that through a pedal. It's literally right there. Hold it. It's, it's right there and right there. Uh, those two, two pedals and into my desk. And I put a little soft gate on it. So it just kind of closes a little bit. And that's going like an eighth notes thing. And I'll slide that in. So it's super distorted. All the top ends rolled off. Crunchy down low on the kick drum. It's like sort of distorted with echo. Sort of, it's the levy breaks thing. That's what it is, basically. And I'll slide that into the mix. And that's part of that sort of feel. But nothing is actually on the beat as such, except for the distortion part, which, of course, creates all kinds of harmonics and power and all those things. I really love uh, slap echoes, tape echoes on vocals. I always have. It's always, I mean, I, I toured the last tour I did. Uh, I toured my entire audio outboard complement at the time with six distressors, uh, a um, Summit, the stereo two channel, uh, like LA2A thing, it's two channels. The Summit made is a lot of things. Claire had a lot of those. And, uh, and then two Space Echoes and a PCM, uh, uh, PCM 80, which I still have. And, you know, that was it. So two Space Echoes, one PCMA, a PCM-80, or an 81, I think. Uh, and that's it. That was my whole touring compliment. Oh, I lied. H3000. 
which is down there over there somewhere. Yeah, that was it. Uh, so, you know, uh, I just don't need a lot of stuff. Yeah. So just to clarify, when you were talking about using that that crotch mic, I guess you can call it. I know Sylvia Massey likes to call it the dick mic. But uh, when you're using when you're using that mic there, you said you're running it through some distortion. And that is kind of that. You Are you running that through distortion and a delay or is the like the close mic, the distorted track? Yes. Yeah, distortion first, then the delay. Gotcha. It's an analog delay. Gotcha. And then are you distorting like the close mic as well at all? Or? Well, it is a close mic. Uh, yeah, fair. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the one inside the inside the kick button inside the kick, like, what would you be? Oh, the, that? No, no. Okay. No, it's just that one channel, just one mic. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you said that, you, you know, the way you kind of described that live reflection of being at front of house, you know, hearing it, it, it kind of goes to show how that live inf- influence has uh, crept into your productions as well, you know, and you, you found you like that vibe. Are you thinking about the band performing live and how this will like kind of naturally happen? No. Okay. You're not really thinking about trying to make a record sound live no. at all. No, no never. Okay. <laughs> no. Awesome. Actually, it's funny. I'm always like, yeah, people are like, Oh, I don't know how we're going to play this live. Like, well, you figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> You'll figure it out. You know, yeah. You'll, you'll you'll figure out a way to do it you know (laughs) it'll give you something to work on yeah well speaking of distortion another thing i think you do really well with your mixes is is your is the way that you use saturation and i think saturation is something that can drastically change the tone of an album can give it a lot of character what's your typical approach for deciding when you're going to use that as well well to be honest with you i never think about i don't i first of all i've never saturated a mix ever I've never used any sort of, I mean, I have a, I have a culture vulture down there mm-hmm. right there. Um, but you know, it's not turned on at the moment. <laughs> I use it. I would use it as a flavor instead of as the, like, in other words, this would be the pop uh, of the, of the flavor of whatever it would be instead of being the, uh, the salt and pepper, you know what I mean? The season, it would be a, you know, tangy thing. Um, and I've never, I, first of all, I don't mix in the box ever. I mix on this SSL. So, um, you know, there's distortion inherent in that. Um, but as far as like saturation, like adding a saturation plugin or something like that, I, I never, ever, ever do that. Um, now, there are ways that, and there are things that I do that would maybe fall into what you're talking about. A lot of times I will get mixes, I will get songs to mix, and either either the room mics are too close or they just don't sound like anything, right? And if that's the case, I have a few things I'll do. One of them is uh, there's a really, really great pedal by Stephen Massey called THC, right? Uh, I think that's what it's called. Total harmonic something. I don't know. THC, whatever, you know, like weed, THC. Yep. Um, and basically it's a rat pedal. Uh, and and uh, UA has one called raw, exactly the same. The difference is that the Massey pedal has a blend. And this is really important. So I will take that pedal and I will put it on the room mics. I will maybe put... I give the knob all the way off. I will turn it maybe an eighth of a turn on or a little bit till you start to really hear the clipping. Then I'll go a little bit higher 
Then I'll take the filter and I'll roll the top end off. So now you've got this sort of dark sort of now because of its distortion, it's starting to compress the whole signal, right? And then I'll add a little more distortion until I get it to it's just at that point that I like. And then I'll move the mix back until the room now has this sort of crushy, pumpy thing that's happening with the compression, the distortion, and the uncompressed room mics. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm mixing the two together. Yeah, you're right. running it like parallel together, basically. Right. Then uh, this is where the weird shit happens. Uh, sometimes ahead of that distortion pedal, I will put um, a plug-in, a delay plug-in. And then I will run that full wet, right? And I'll just slide the rooms back in time a bit. Gotcha. So now I'm moving my microphones my fucked up microphones I've got going on, I will move them all back in the room. And um, you you start to get that sort of feel of the pump of the low end away from the drums, away from the direct. So that's a, that's a little trick. That's very cool. I love that. Yeah, I love hearing stories about like ways that people manipulate sound. I do that three out of 15 songs. Wow. That's, that's uh, three out good. of 50, maybe. <laughs> three out of 25. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, there definitely is a fine line between having just the right amount of saturation versus going too far. Well, the thing is, a lot of people, a lot of people are sort of part of the thing is for young people who have never recorded on tape or worked on a tape machine. The thing to know, the big, really important thing to know is tape machines weren't there to make distortion, period. They weren't there to create saturation, period. They weren't there to make things sound warm, period, or fuzzy period. All of those things are complete bullshit. Tape machines were there to record the signal as clean and as pristine as they humanly designed them to be, as they were humanly designed to be. Now, the side effects of tape were that tape has only so much dynamic range. So if you hit the tape a little hard, what happened is the tape would saturate, which was distortion, but it would saturate in a very analog way that was very pleasing to our human self. All right. So using a tape machine wasn't this thing that like, oh, God, we want this to be warm and fat and blah, blah, blah. No, you did all that ahead of time. You, you, you tuned the drums correctly. You put the right mics on. You used the console. You used compression. You used all those things. Then you put it on tape. And when you played it back, you went, wow, that sounds good because it's supposed to sound good. Just like if it goes to Pro Tools, it's supposed to sound good. Now, what people did is people manipulated the machines to get sounds that they weren't able to get with anything else at the time. And what they would do is they would under-bias the snare drum track. Now, under-biasing the snare drum track means you've got elevated high end. That means you don't have to turn up so much high end, Right. It would elevate that and it would also slightly decrease its, it would increase its point or decrease the point where it's saturated. So now the snare drum would go and there's no compressors involved. Just crash. If you listen to, you know, listen to Hall Notes records or listen to like anything made in the, in the 80s and 90s, 
you're going to hear that sound because that's what people did. Okay. So by the same token, people would record like a perfect thing for me is when I record on tape, uh, if I'm doing a 16 track, which I won't do 24. So just do 16. I put the room mics on one and two, the kicks drum on three, the snare drum on four toms on five and six and overheads on seven and eight. Now, to be honest with you, that's really not true. On 16 track, I would do often, I would just do a room mic, a single room mic. I put the bass on track one, room mic on two, kick on three, snare on four, and drums, overheads and toms, five and six. I'd mix those together. So now we've got six tracks, and that leaves us uh, another nine or 10. All right, or nine, really, because you need, need 16. So, um, I would take, if I was doing a, um, this is also nerdy technology stuff, but if I was doing tape right now, I would do um, a 5 over 250 alignment CCIR, which is uh, the European standard on my student machine. Sounds great. And then uh, that's a 9 over, nine, uh, five, sorry, 5 over 250, uh, no, 3 over 250, sorry. Oh, five over 250. This is, it's been a while. Uh, that's eight over 185 uh, on my machine. But on tracks three and four, I just do three over. Now, why is that? Well, I'm getting two extra dB of headroom on the kick and snare. That's the day before they saturate. And 15 ips. This is the important part 15 ips, not 30, 15. So uh, that gets you this, you know, groovy tape, low frequency bump, right exactly in the right spot. You want the low frequency bump. And it means that that top end, because we're doing CCIR, is really even and very, very smooth. And saturates really nice. So very cool. Especially yeah. for toms and cymbals and things like that. That's very cool. Well, it's interesting you were talking about the snares and how people would calibrate their machines to get that length off of it. And that's actually one of the things that I noticed when I listen to your mixes a lot too, is that your mixes, the when it comes to the drums and snare in particular, they feel like they have a lot of length and body to them. I'm not hearing just like a quick little tick, you know, like most people have with yeah, their no, snares. Yeah, fuck that. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 it sounds like a, the, the snare occupies that space between the notes and it, it sounds really beefy and full. That's exactly what I'm wanting it to do. Awesome. Occupying the space, uh, it needs to be a note. I, I tend to not, I tend to like all the rattly shit. The more shit rattles, the more I like it. Because to me, that sounds, that's just a, that's just a thing. I mean, you know, look, any, anybody can, can make, I don't want to say anybody, because I don't think I can, but, you know, really perfect drums with like gated toms and gated kick and gated snare. You know what I mean? And like, I mean, fuck, just get easy drummer, <laughs> you know? Just get easy drummer. That's that's not how the world is. I I love it when the snare drums rattling and on on floor tom hits and all that. Let's not let Zeppelin stuff, man. I mean, come on. There's all kinds of things going on in the drum tracks. Absolutely. So then, as far as getting that body and that length on those snares, is it a, is it because of the way you saturate the tape machine at all? No, it has nothing to do with that. Basically, what the deal is, it has to do a tuning. It has to do a dampening snare, tuning, getting the tuning correct. And then, um, like, 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 let's ignore the state machine. Let's just ignore. I mean, I have Burl converters, you know, so we'll, we'll just talk about it for just doing a purely recording thing. What I'll do is I'll do a little bit of compression on the snare with one of the, that 1176 right there, that one, um, uh, to tape, but just a little bit. 
because I just like the way the 1176 sounds on it. Uh, super slow attack, super slow release, or super fast release, right? Basically, the attack is all the way up, or all the way down, however you want to look at it, all the way to the right, and the, re the release is all the way, or all the way to the left, all the way to the right. Yeah, makes sense. Yep. Um, and so what that's really just doing is it's allowing the transit to go through, and then as, as the transit goes through, it starts to compress the meat of the snare. That stretches it out a bit, right? Then having it the release release almost immediately means that the, the top of the peak is what comes down. Now the snare cracks through, the top of the peak gets just leveled off a little bit. Then it opens up because it's it it opens the compression. Now the backside stays up. See what I'm saying? Because you're you're manipulating gain. Oftentimes, if I'm tracking uh, like a rock and roll band, like like when I was doing um, uh, uh, Todd O'Brien, I, I actually used a couple things in parallel in my mix path, not my tracking path, not my mix path, my tracking path. I have a transit designer and I have a distressor, and I will send that signal to them and then bust those two back into my track to tape. The transit designer will be... Uh, with the attack turned way down and the release very long. So now you get this long, right? And then the distressor is just basically uh, at four. Uh, I think the attack is a four, four, five, sorry, five and the release of four. This allows the attack to pass. It compresses and then holds it for a bit and then releases it slowly. And I would just take those two and just add them in almost imperceptibly. I'll add them in until it gets louder, right? Then I'll turn them off. And if it turns down a dB, I'm like, cool, turn them back on. And then that just adds a little bit of processed sound to the snare. The second thing I do is I never record separate microphones ever. I record the top and the bottom combined together. I want one track of snare drum. And so in the end, yeah, sometimes that snare drum is a full quarter note in length. And I'm totally cool with that. I love that approach. I, I haven't heard anyone describe it that way, but it makes a lot of sense that when you use that transient designer to get the length and you have the distress. I do the same there. thing on the kick drum. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Boom, bam, boom, bam, boom, bam. You know, that's rock and roll to me. That's why I, I love that. And so therefore... I'm not using, in that situation, a kick drum without a front head, not miking it inside it. This is a 24, 26 inch or 28 inch kick drum, solid head, no hole, miked from the front. So that, that drum is boom, it's a note, boom. And I love that knock, that conk thing that happens, you know? Because if you took off the front head, then you wouldn't have that sustain. No, you don't have the note. note. Yeah. It sounds poop, poop, poop. Pop, pop, pop. That's cool. That's a sound for me. And if you're making a steely fucking Dan record, maybe. <laughs> I love it. No, that, that's great. I love that approach to, to how you do it. If you're making I a steely Dan record, a drum machine plays its first time. Then you hire a drummer <laughs> to play it. Then you use delays to line up the drummer to the drum machine. Then you replace all the sounds. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that approach. And I love the way you commit to your tracks. And I think that that is really important. Like... It's, I mean, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I burned myself before, 
but uh i just matter of fact i just did a record uh that um this is sort of one of those double like i can't exactly say who to blame on this but uh the drummer changed snares and when he did he didn't take the strainer off the other one so there's just these snares rattling through the track at the time i was like oh you know it's kind of cool and now i'm like oh fuck <laughs> you know i want to get to mix it i'm like oh okay so yeah he just took the sound and set it down next to the drum kit on its side with the snare still on like even though i have all these little pads you can set it on to kill him he didn't do it so so it's kind of everywhere yeah for sure i mean you know it's look look here's the deal is someone gonna listen to that and go you know i really want my money back okay apple i, I don't like this song i want my dollar back uh you know what they say <laughs> fuck you you know <laughs> Love i it. mean it's not like you can go to you can go down to music land and, and say, I hate this record. Here you go. True. Yeah, of course. Yep. Well, you had mentioned another thing that makes your snare sound the way that they, that they do is the tuning. And I was wondering if you can give us some insight into how you like to tune your drums and how you use the tuning to help you with, with that size as well. Well, I like, I like them tuned to the, to the key of the song, you know, so the snare should be the root. Tom's, you know, should be the five and the three or whatever, you know, whatever it is, you know, boom, 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 you know, boom, 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 up, down, you know, root, root, five, three, whatever. Gotcha. Um, a lot of drummers don't get that. Some of them can't do it. Um, you know, I like drums tuned higher, like Tom's floor tom higher than most people would think i know people who are just like yeah and i like them really low you know like like tubs and i'm like you know okay cool sounds sounds awesome you know boom pat boom pat tud boom pat boom pat tud you know like okay well that's a sound but and then the floor tom's like poof, you know poof, poof. okay great well sounds cool through a pa it's not gonna sound very cool in my headphones or on my, you know, my speakers kind of go pull. So then if I'm mixing, I'll, I will find a, a, a drum and I'll tune it, I'll find one that's tuned to the key of the song and I'll just, you know, augment it. Gotcha. With something that goes boom instead gotcha. of. Tuh. So then when you're tuning, are you, because you said you like to tune it to the key of the song. Do you ever use like those tune bots or anything like no. that? Or is it, okay. No, huh? you, a, Day, a bang, a bang, a bang. You know, you know what I mean. Like, get it close. Just get it close. Fair. Yeah. A lot of people don't even they just don't even think about that. It's true. Yeah. I mean, drums are one of those weird things. Where like, it's not like yeah, you you typically carry around a tuner to tune your drums, right? So you just have to at least have an idea of kind of how how it is in relation to the song for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes it being out of tune is cool you know what i mean like sometimes sometimes i'll be like okay cool it just needs to be a little sharper you know like let's make it a little sharp bing 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 you know it's like a little sharper and then it sounds a little adds some tension and that's cool but most of the time it's just ding 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 bang 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 you know try to get them as close as possible and you know take the snares off and then try to tune it so that it doesn't have like wacky do overtones 
all that stuff. Every now and then, every now and then there's a guy here at Black, he works at Blackbird and Paul Simmons. And I'll just hire Paul to come over. I'm like, hey, can you get these, you know, get all these drums tuned up because sort of close, <laughs> you know, to something. Yeah. And then when they're close and you kind of have an idea of where they're going and all that. For sure. Yeah, it's good to have a good tech that you can call on whenever you need it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another area of your drums that I really love the sound of on a lot of your records, like when I listen to records like the, the Clutch record that you did and Chris Stapleton, um, when I listen to those, you have a lot of like cool ambience in the way you treat your drums. And I feel like you can always hear that room tone, whether it's a big sound or a tight sound, like there's always still at least a little bit of that uh, that intimacy and that that feel where you like kind of maybe that kind of live feel where you feel like you're in a room with people. So I'm curious to know when it comes to approaching ambience in your mixes, you know, how much of that is stuff that you've tracked in the in the tracking stage and it's like a live room mic versus it. something? Oh, it is. So you're not adding anything in post ever. Mm. Not really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, mm. Some, sometimes, sometimes maybe. Um, like well, the clutch record was all done here in my room, right? My room isn't that big. You know, it's 25 by 23 or something with a 16 foot ceiling and oblong weird ship room. But um, whatever ambience you're hearing on the drums, mostly the room. Um, and, and that knee mic is part of all that too. There's a mic out in front of the drums, Coles. Uh, like if you're sitting behind the kit, and if you look, if you could see through the the rack tom, right, onto the floor in front of the kick, right, it's it's like two and a half feet in front of the kick, and then maybe two and a half to three feet over to the hi hat side. Gotcha. There's a mic I call front, and that's part of it, and that's that sort of uh uh. <laughs> Honestly, it's just that distance thing that happens with the kick drum, that that sort of act, that hit that's a little farther away, and it kind of gets to the bottom of the toms, it gets to the bottom of the snare a little bit. It just kind of gets a bunch of stuff that's over there that I don't really have quite. A, I mean, I have a bottom snare mic, but I don't have a bottom tom mic, you know. So, mm -hmm. kind of gets a little body there, and you know, you gotta fuss with the phase a little bit uh, to to get all that to work, but. Um, or I should say the polarity. Um, but uh, yeah, usually that's it. That doesn't mean that I haven't added a reverb or something. I, I really like this thing. Uh, it's off at the moment because it makes a bunch of noise. It's uh, the fan is the fan is noisy. Uh, and this is a DN780. So it's an old Clark Technique from 1985 uh, reverb. First studio I worked at in Joplin. That's the only reverb they had. And so uh, I have I have a pair of them. I may have three of them. Uh, one of them works. <laughs> and um, but the fan is loud. So I uh, leave it off. But um, it's awesome for that, like, kind of 80s AMS snare reverb thing, you know. And um, it's got a patch called uh, Live which is literally like in the air tonight in a box, you know, <laughs> uh, it really is. Or really, I should say it's intruder in a box more so than in the air tonight. It's like, uh, if you know that Peter Gabriel track intruder, that's where the gated drums came from. 
you know, everybody says Phil Collins invented it. No, Phil Collins didn't invent it. Phil Collins played it on Intruder, which is a Peter Gabriel record. Fair. Yep. <laughs> so that, that's cool. So you're you're just really kind of just, just as far as getting your ambience and your room tone with your drums, it's, it's more just a matter of getting creative with the positioning of the microphones. And- it's just part of my thing. Again, it's just part of my thing. It's like it's part of the thing that I want to hear. What I want to hear is what I need it to to be. So I just turn knobs until it works. Sometimes, like I have this little loop um, that is a it's a rap pedal it's over there. Uh, it's a rap pedal and uh, an old Roland or a Boss DM one hundred. All right. Now, those two things combined together create an ambience that is not exactly, I'm not able to do it in, a, in the box, right? That, that thing I did earlier, I was talking about with the room sound and the rap pedal and all that, that's kind of it, but kind of not. This does its own thing, right? It's a rap pedal, like an original Proco rap pedal, doesn't have to be anything special. The one they sell now would work in a DM100. Not easy to get, kind of expensive these days. Uh, Roland or Boss DM100 is a Bucket Brigade delay. It's uh, kind of terrible sounding and awesome, right? Um, it's in a weird box. It's about yay big, you know, eight inches wide and three inches high. It doesn't really fit in a rack. It's, it was meant to go on top of your guitar amp, I think, is what it was meant for. Um, I use that on the snare drum quite a bit to provide an ambience that I can only describe as being cool. And I don't understand. It's like the one thing, like it's, it's like the one thing I use that people all the time are going, I I don't know what is, what's going on in there. What's happening. And I show it to them. They're like, Oh, Oh, I wouldn't have expected that. They think it's reverb or something, you know? And sometimes I, I do stupid stuff with it. I make it so that it goes, Ding and rings so it spins you know so sometimes it's doing even weirder stuff and it may be in the mix 20 percent, 30 percent, but it's so important to me that it actually gets a fader on my desk nice you know all this shit not all of it can get a fader not a not an automated fader that one gets an automated fader because they use it quite a bit sometimes you use it on vocals sometimes you use it on bass you know Sometimes it's cool when the bass is going, you know what I mean? And the drummer played that, 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 you know what I mean? Sometimes that's cool. So, you know, just things like that. I just, I think the thing for me in delays over reverbs is that I like things to be a little complicated. Like I like the, I like the, I like when things are kind of, uh, it's hard to see uh, if you don't see the video, but I like it when the mix sort of shakes a bit. You know what I mean? Like there's a wiggle in it that you can't exactly get your head around. And not like the whole mix, but just, you know, it's just more complicated than what people play. Yeah, there's a bit of a bounce in between the notes kind of thing. Yeah, there's some, there's, there's not, not that there's no space in it, but there's something going on. I have a pair of PCM42s right here. I use them at like, um, like right now they're at 119 and 112. All right. 
119 and 112. I have the times two on, so they're half quality, right? And then uh, I have it set so that the envelope modulates them. I use that on my lead vocal all the time to make the lead vocal spread out. But they're modulating. I mean, they're bending. The time is bending. They're just bending with the envelope. And, and because they're at different times, you know, they're bending different widths. So one's on the left side, one's on the right. And it's like PC, uh, PSP makes a PCM42 plug-in, by the way, that will do exactly what I'm doing with us. And I'm not saying that I've never not used those. I have used the PSPs quite a bit. It just requires you use two of them. Yeah. yeah two, two plugins. For sure. Um, going back to the uh, the room mics that you're using, are you ever doing any, like, are you adding compression to those at all? Or like, sure. You, okay. Sure. I'm actually adding a limiter, uh, t- okay. uh, EMI limiter. That's just so that it creates like a consistency throughout the whole track? And it just creates that cool pumpy thing, you know? Very cool. That little pumpy deal. And, you know, the second you turn that thing on, suddenly the cymbals are too loud. So you have to EQ that out. And, you know, you got you to futz with it a little bit to get it to work. My room doesn't do the thing that like East West does. Like if you go in East West, you can put up a pair of mics in there and it just immediately sounds like awesome room. Right. Well, because it is an awesome room and it's big, you know, it's, it's a pretty big site. Like, and I'm not saying like the big room at East West, I'm, I'm saying like studio two, right. Which is amazing for drums. Um, it's kind of narrow and long. So it's not so deep, but it's wide pair of m50s in there it's just unbelievable how good it is same thing with blackbird in studio d blackbirds kind of that way um my room isn't that big it's it's and and it's it's a very complicated room because of the acoustic treatment on the wall i've got these curtains in there opening the curtains makes one sound closing them you know makes another sound there's gobos in there there's b3 there's piano there's drums there's you know there's all this stuff in there so there's not this real clear room sound what there is is a very complex complicated diffuse sound very uh not diffuse i would say very diffused sound gotcha so then for for people who are listening to this that might be working in smaller rooms or maybe you know, even a basement or a home studio, that kind of thing. What advice would you give them for for kind of getting the most out of a small room? Going a good reverb. No, um, <laughs> you know, the thing is, is you, you just got to make the room, you just got to make sure that the room, the standing waves in the room are broken up with something. Uh, I'll tell you what works really well. Uh, bookcases and books, those work really well. Um, curtains, blankets, um, theater curtain, like you can find a velvet theater curtain, things like that. The, the reality is, is that the smaller, depending on, like if you're in a basement, a friend of mine has a studio in his basement, by the way, uh, here in town, about a mile from me. And the ceiling is really low. I mean, the ceiling is like, you know, standing up, it's maybe a foot above me. But the way this guy's drums set up, he just made the most of it. He hung his overhead mics off the rafters above him he insulated some of the rafters and some of the others he left alone he's got a concrete floor and he's got this stairway that goes up and the stairway is awesome sounding so when he's cutting drums he just has a mic bolted to the ceiling in his stairwell 
He's got this mono mic in his stairwell. It sounds great. Now, it only goes up one floor, but it doesn't matter because there's a whole stairwell there. And it's at the other end of where his drums are. And it sounds great. Um, the only problem, really, is that it sounds like it sounds like that room. And so at first it sounded like a concrete basement, which is what it is. A few carpets in there, it got a little bit better, but then two dead. So then he had to kind of deal with some of the wall reflection. And over the last couple of years, he's got it sounding great. It's just, you know, you just got to try things. You know, you got stuff on your walls and you don't even have real drums. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I'm in a, I'm a, in an apartment, so I can't really play my drums here, you know. So it's just like just a mixing room here. But but uh, but yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like the key to just getting the most out of a small room is to really. The just... thing is, you should it should sound good when you speak in it. Yes. That's the deal I found with control rooms. If I go in a control room and I'm talking, I I literally will go in like let's say we're gonna go stop by a studio and check it out. I will go in and stand behind the desk and I will just stand by behind the right where the speakers are, right where I'm, I'm going to be sitting. And I'll just be like, talk to people and listen to what's going on around me. And I can tell pretty quick if I want to work there or not. But I guess the other thing, too, is just like walking around a room and just trying to find the cool spots of the room. Like you said, like your buddy's stairwell, you know, if that's if that's got some character to it, then use it. You know, maybe it's like a matter of opening up a door and recording a mic down the hallway or in a bathroom or something like that. Sometimes you can get some cool character out of that too, right? When when my my room is square, sort of, sort of rectangular, sort of, but then it has this little cutout here, has a little notch. And um, the first session I did here, I put drums in it, and uh, we got the police called on us, which was awesome. That's a whole nother story uh, about having neighbors. Um, the neighbors called the police because she could hear drums come through the wall. And she was like, and I, I own a business. She owns an eBay business, but she just didn't <laughs> like hearing it. But the thing is, is that there are rules. Like it has to be at the property line, a certain volume. It was nowhere near that. Right. So the cops are like, yeah, mm, well, ignore her. So I moved the drums to the other side of the room. She never complained again. There, there's other stuff too. We, we actually built a concrete wall <laughs> to block us out, but um yeah, she never complained again. It was fine. So now, you know, seven years later, I put the drums back over there. Nobody's complained. And that sounds better over there. So I had it right the first time where, where it was in that spot. Uh, and it kind of gets the drums out of the main room and gets me more main room. Uh, but, you know, live and learn. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Right on, Vance. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time to to hang out. And you gave us so, so much great insight into what goes into your records. And I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you got your family over. You got a busy, busy day. But um, if people want to learn more about you, follow your work online and, and maybe even potentially work with you, what's the best way for them to get in, in touch with you? Well, my management company has a uh, website. It's uh, globalpositioningservices.net, I think, something like that. But you could just really Google me. Um, I, you know, I have a strange name and, uh, uh, there's been enough stuff on the internet. If you Google me, I'm the first guy who comes up. So there is another Vance Pell, by the way, he's a, uh, realtor in, uh, Austin and, uh, he hates the fact that I'm the one who comes up first. <laughs> I am confident that he's paying somebody for better Google <laughs> analytics than, uh, than I am because I'm paying no one. 
but I do enough of these podcasts and things and have enough whatever going on that the whole first page of Google is me. So you can Google me. Um, VancePal.com is my website. If you go there, you will find nothing more than my phone number and my email. Uh, which I, you know, is, yeah, is there. Um, <laughs> Uh, beyond that, I mean, you know, I'm on Instagram, uh, uh Vancelot, I didn't on Instagram at, at Vancelot, at Vancelot on Twitter. Um, and then I'm on Facebook, but I have weird rules about Facebook. I only, uh, friend people that I know. Now on Twitter, I am a little more active. Um, I have a lot of, um, political opinions and opinions about things and people that I will, you know, get on. So, I am on there. Uh, a lot of retweeting. And, uh, you know. Right on. Right on. So that was my interview with Vance Powell. And that was a lot of fun. I, I thought it was really interesting to hear about all the pieces of gear that he likes to use. And I thought it was really cool that he incorporates a lot of guitar pedals into his processing. And I know that you couldn't see it because you're just listening to the podcast. But, you know, for me, I could see his studio and he just has this wall of pedals that he's just got Velcroed up there. And it's cool to see how he connects everything and just to hear how he thinks outside of the box a little bit. And he uses some kind of uncommon pieces of equipment in the studio. Um, and obviously it's a big reason why he has the cool character and sound that he does. So I thought it was really cool that Vance went into some of that equipment and also really interesting to hear his approach to drums. And especially when it comes to things like snare, I loved hearing how he incorporates the transient designer and the the distressor and how he combines those into the sound. I just think that that's a really cool approach to getting that body and the length out of the drums. And it's great to hear some people's process for that stuff. Cause you know, for me personally, I hate snare drum. Snare drum is always the, the biggest challenge when it comes to a mix. And I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to that, but I just think Vance's snares sound so cool. So I'm definitely going to be implementing some of the suggestions he made here today. And I suggest you do as well. So I hope that you found that interview helpful, fascinating, and if you did, as always, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com, which is where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And you definitely want to check out The Mixing Mindset. That is a book that I've got on there that inside of that book, I break down the entire process of mixing from beginning to end, talking about the different gear that you should be using, how to dial in settings, what to be listening for, what, what steps to take, what order to work in. That way it takes out all of the guesswork from your process. So once again, check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it, and I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com. 